All right, well, as the ushers continue uh, finish up collecting this morning's offering, we'll go ahead and jump, uh, jump right in here. And I want to acknowledge for you before we start that this week uh, will be a little bit difficult. And, and this week is going to, and if you're visiting with us today, good job picking this week. Um, <laughs> um, but, but this week is a little bit difficult because today we get to talk about something that people hate to talk about. Today we talk about God's justice. And, and when we talk about God's justice, this is, this is a topic that wrecks people. Um, it, it ruins people. Uh, Sometimes it ruins faith for people because we want to know why, why do bad things happen and and why is the world the way it is? And how is a, a God just? And what about hell? Is God really going to send people to hell? What am I supposed to do with that when I think about a God that's good and loving? And, and, and how does it work out? And, and if heaven's real and all it takes is trust and faith in Jesus Christ, then, then, then what about some of the people that are in heaven that I don't want to be in heaven, that, that I don't think deserve to be there? And we have to wrestle with all of these questions um, as, as we gather this morning. And we're going to do that. But before we start, uh, I want to remind you of this, a couple of things. First and foremost is simply this. God loves you. God's love for you is ridiculous and deep and wide, and it's unmovable. It's unfailing. It doesn't falter. If you need to know more about the way God loves you, I'd encourage you to go back and, and re-listen to last week's sermon uh, and check that out because we talked a lot about God's love. But don't forget this morning as we talk about the justice of God and the judgment of God, that God is for you. And you're going to see as we, as we unpack this sermon today that not only is God for you, but God has gone to great lengths for you. And God is not looking to ding you at every mistake. God is not looking, um, he's not following you around looking to whap you on the nose with the newspaper as soon as you step out of line. But God is for you, okay? But, but that being said, we, we have to talk about God's justice today because it's necessary for us to understand what's at stake for Christians and non-Christians alike, okay? And so as we get into this, uh, I'll tell you the reason this is so important. Uh, the thesis for this whole series, we're on week eight of a 10-week series. The thesis for this whole series is simply this statement A.W. Tozer makes, which says, what comes into your mind when you think about God is absolutely the most important thing about you, okay? And that's not just lip service. That's not just something we say. It's something we actually believe to be true. The fundamental core, what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. And that's especially true when we get to God's justice because there's so much misunderstanding and there's so much at stake. And like I said, it's something that have caused people to walk away from the God of the Bible, Right, I mean, there's, there's two ways we, we crack this. There's, there's one is there are people that are atheists. That means they don't believe in a God. Then there, if you're not an atheist, you're what we would call a theist. Theist is, is not necessarily a Christian, but it's someone who believes in a God. Okay, and so what happens is when, when we talk about God's judgment and everything that's wrapped up in there, what happens is we get this idea that, yeah, maybe there is a God, but it can't be the God of the Bible. And so we have all kinds of people who would claim that they are, and I've got lots in my life, and I know you have lots in yours, that would claim that they are, I love this one, they're spiritual, but they're not necessarily Christian. And one of the big reasons why is because they can't get past this idea of the judgment and the justice of God. And so what we believe about God when it comes to this is of critical importance. And there's two questions that really pop in. Uh, the first question simply is, um, why do bad things happen to good people? Right? We know that it wrecks us. Why do people die young? Why are there tragedies in the world? Why are there accidents? Why are our people hurt? Why is there murder? Why is there rape? Why is there genocide in a world where God is in charge of things? Why does that happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? And that's a fair question. 
But you know what? Um, I'm going to be really honest with you. This is giving you a glimpse into my heart, which is sometimes wicked and goofy. The bigger question for me, the one I really wrestle with, is why do good things happen to, to bad people? You know, I mean, I, I, I struggle with why, why do bad things happen to good people, but I really want to know why is it that good people, people that, that don't care about anyone else, uh, they use you, they'll stomp on you, they'll step on you, they'll, they'll cut you down at a moment's notice, they'll stab you in the back, sometimes they'll stab you in the front, they'll do all kinds of things. Why is it that good things seem to happen to them? Why is it that all of their plans seem to succeed and nothing ever goes wrong? And these are things that wreck us because they're supposed to be this good, sovereign, gracious, loving God that's in charge of all things. And it, and it, it, it gets to us and we start to wonder, what exactly is it? And, and it's this, this truth that we know. We, we teach it to our kids. Do me a favor. If you've got kids at home, raise your hand if you've ever told your kids, gleefully probably, if you're like me, that life just isn't fair. Raise your hand if that was ever told to you, usually by an irritated, frustrated parent. <laughs> life isn't fair, and you know what? We get it. Life isn't fair, but there's an underlying question. If life isn't fair, and there is a God who created the world, the world's not fair, but there's a God who created it, he sustains it. He's in charge of it. He has the days mapped out from beginning to end. If life isn't fair, it's God. Can, can we have a fair God in a world where there's not fairness? And you know what? That's Abraham's question. It's not new for us. We go back to the beginning. We go back to Genesis. And the question of fairness, is God just starts in scripture. You remember, you remember the text. It's Genesis uh, 18, 23. There you go. Uh, Abraham approached God and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? The, the context is this. Um, Abraham has been chosen by God. He's been called. He's been set apart by God. And, and so he's traveling. God says, go, I'll show you where you're going later. You're going you're, you're gonna to marry, uh, or you're already married. You're going to have children. Your children are going to number the stars, the grains of sand. You're going to be this great nation. I'll bless the world through you. Everything is going to be good. Go. Abraham is obedient. He gets up and he goes. We know his life a little bit. Sometimes he does a really good job. Other times he does kind of a dumb job. Okay. But, but he goes. And there's this moment where uh, Abraham is having a conversation with um, the angel of God. We, we, we read that as, as maybe a pre-incarnate Jesus, okay? Doesn't matter. But, but he's having this conversation with God, and God says, should we share our plans with him? Surely Abraham is going to be the father of a great nation. He is, is the first of Israel, of the nation of Jews. And so surely he's going to be the father of a great nation. Should we tell him what we're about to do, or should we keep it from him? We'll tell him. He says, I'm going down to Sodom and Gomorrah. Their wickedness has reached my ears in heaven, and I will bring judgment on that city, and I will wipe them out. And Abraham, of course, is concerned because his nephew Lot and his nephew's family live in Gomorrah. And so he asks God this question boldly, but it's a heartfelt question. It's one we all share at the core. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked. And basically the question is this, will you be fair? Will you be just in the way that you deal with people? And it's a question that burns us and it's burned ever since. And I tell you this, uh, the reality is, I believe that the Christian answer to evil in the world and the way that God brings justice into the world in a way that is just and fair is the best answer you're going to hear. See, all religions, all time, have tried to deal with the question of evil and what happens to evil people. And all religions have had an answer for what happens to evil people and why do bad things happen. But I'm here to tell you that as we get into the word today and we break scripture apart, that what you're going to find out is that the Christian answer is the only answer 
that holds water. It's the only, it's the only answer that will deal with your questions. It's the only answer that, that will deal with your, your innate desire for fairness. We're going to see that as we open this up a little bit. But I'm going to warn you, it can sting. Okay? It just can. But let's, let's take a look at what, what the Word has to say about God and His justice. Okay, so it starts with this. Psalm 97.2 simply says, um, clouds and thick darkness surround Him. Talking about the God of the universe now. Clouds and thick darkness surround Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Okay, and so when we, when we talk about the foundation of His throne, we're talking about at the core of His being. His throne. See, God as a as a as an entity, is the rightful ruler. And his right to rule at the fact that he is in charge of all things, at the foundation of that are these two truths, that God is righteous and that God is just. See, and and the reason that you have to understand that, and the reason this is necessary for you to get is because I still, no matter how long I've been a pastor, it's been about three and a half years, Okay? And I have a feeling, no matter how long I am a pastor in the future, okay? and no matter how many times some of us have heard it, this is something that we still wrestle with. And the question about this is why? Why is it necessary? <coughs> See, we talk about the fact that God has a standard of perfection. And the common question I get about God's standard of perfection... See, nobody argues. Yeah, I, nobody... nobody not many people will argue. I'm perfect. I never make mistakes. Okay, we're smarter than that. But what people will often argue is I'm good enough. I don't make many mistakes. I'm a good person. I'm a decent human being. Why in the world would God want to judge me a good, decent human being? And so we see that, that we think about this idea that God sent his son to die. How brutal is that for a guy that's pretty decent? I mean, look, I got like warts and everything, but I'm fairly decent. But yet, according to the Christian faith, according to scripture, according to the God of the universe, Jesus had to come and be nailed to a cross so that I, a fairly decent guy, could be okay with God. And we're like, that is so ridiculously harsh and stupid, and why in the world would I want to follow that God? But here's the thing you have to understand. Psalm 97.2 just kind of sums this up for you. It's because there's no choice for God. Because righteousness, that is rightness, holiness, perfection, and justice, that is God maintaining this rightness, come together And they are the foundation of his throne. They are the foundation of his rule. They are the foundation of his character. See, the question of the cross is simply this. God can't ignore your sin. You're like, but but Matt, my sin's not very big. Yeah, I know. Like that guy murdered somebody. I just had a really awful evil thought about somebody. I mean, if we're putting those on a scale murdering somebody and wanting to murder somebody are, humanly speaking, they are two different things. You go to jail for this one, right? Depending on the setting you're in, people will understand this one. But righteousness, rightness, holiness, and justice for God must be completely met. It's in his character. God can't overlook even the smallest thing. And so we have to understand when we talk about God's justice that it's not a choice for him. It's a character issue. God can not overlook your sin. He does not have it in him. He cannot do that, get this now, and still be God. So I'm going to go ahead and skip to the end here for a second, and we'll get there eventually, but I want to skip to the end here for a second. If you're here this morning and you're trusting on your being a good enough person to get you to heaven, like you, you, you intellectually, you understand heaven and hell are real, and God is good and gracious and loving and kind, and I am a good enough person. I know plenty of worse people. I'm a good enough person, so God will let me into heaven. There's no way God will say, oh, sorry, you, you are going to be sadly mistaken. Because God cannot overlook your sin and still be God. 
As soon as he would do that, he would cease to be the God of the universe, and that's not something that's ever going to happen. It's not something that ever could happen. God cannot overlook your sin. You have to understand that. His righteousness, his rightness, his holiness, and his justice must work together. There's good news for us, though. We're going to see how they do um, in an act of mercy and grace, but, but it's necessary for them to come together. Okay? And then you, you might have this, this fair question, like, okay, Hans, why in the world would God of the universe set up this system? Why would he do this on purpose? Why would he set up a scenario where everybody was going to be wrong? Well, here's the deal. He didn't. He didn't. Okay? We jacked it up. Genesis 3, God has created perfectly. It's very, very good. Everything is right. Everything is the way it should be. And um, Adam and Eve make respective dumb decisions. I would say that Adam goes first. Okay, God says, go, enjoy the garden, eat anything you want. And where's Adam hanging out? Like right by the thing God said, don't do, right? I mean, they should have had to travel a long ways to get to the tree to even sin in the first place. God says, go, enjoy. Everything is open to you except this one thing. Why in the world are they close by? I don't know. And then Satan tempts Eve, this temptation that, you know what, God doesn't have your best interest in mind. He's trying to withhold something that is so good for you, you want it, don't you? And she's like, yeah, I do. And then she eats it, and Adam says, oh, you didn't really die, so I better have some of that too. And so they sin, and, and sin enters the world, and it's like cancer. And a lot of you have dealt with cancer, either personally or in your families. It's an invasive illness, and it ruins everything. And it enters in, and it eats away and it messes with things, and nothing is the way it was supposed to be. Even the cure is devastating. And sin comes in the world, and it's like cancer, and it breaks everything, and mankind is broken. Listen to me. You're going to die. You weren't intended to die, but you're going to die. Because sin has come in the world, and sin has broken mankind. The world is broken. Hurricanes, floods, tornadoes, earthquakes, droughts, hunger, all of it. The result of sin that enters the world, a cancer that comes in and messes with everything. And morality's broken. <coughs> on a small level, the way we treat each other is not what it was intended to be in perfection. On a grand scale, there's murder and genocide and awfulness. It's broken. But God didn't create it that way. This is a consequence of sin. And so what happens then, that's in Genesis 3, we see this happen, and then all through the rest of the book of Genesis, and, and honestly, all throughout Scripture, what we see is God's story of how he is going to interact with people in a broken world, and how people are supposed to maintain, and how God ultimately is going to deal with injustice. Some of you ask me the question, you're like, well, why do bad things happen? Where is God when bad things happen? Read the entirety of Scripture. Because the entirety of Scripture, from Genesis all the way up to Revelation 21, is this grand picture of what God is going to be doing to redeem and ultimately judge evil and deal with it once and for all. See, you know, God comes, think about Genesis 3. They sin, there's brokenness. What's the first thing God does? He passes judgment and then He makes them close, He offers them redemption. Noah's Ark, God brings judgment on a world that is mired in sin. But what's he do? He provides salvation for mankind. The person of Abraham, the nation of Israel, Moses, the exodus from Egypt, the establishing of a community, the prophets, the Messiah, the church, all to tell the story of God's redemption and to live it out and eventually... God's coming back again. But this is the thing we have to understand. This is the thing that's so hard for us to grasp. And this is where I, honestly, I lose people. Is that when Jesus comes back, he's, he's not coming to offer salvation. See, Jesus tells us in, in Luke 19.10, I came to seek and save that which is lost. And that is a true story. Seek and save that which is lost. That's Jesus' mission. That's what he's about. He comes to seek and save that which is lost. 
And then there's his death on the cross and his resurrection and ushering in this new covenant, this new kingdom. And then we, his church, are established and we thrive and we share the gospel with people to know it. We now carry the banner of seeking and saving that which is lost. But the word tells us as we continue that Jesus will come again. And when Jesus comes again, the heart of his coming again is not to seek and save that which is lost. Please hear me. The heart of his coming again is to bring retribution for sin and evil. At the heart of God's justice is the idea of retribution. God will see to it. This stings, but hear me. God will see to it that ultimately everyone gets what they deserve. And that, hear me now, please, that does not negate the fact that God is love, that God loves you like crazy. But ultimately, when Jesus comes again, he is coming to bring retribution. That's at the heart of his justice, is that nobody will get a raw deal. Good will be repaid for good. Evil will be repaid with evil. Evil will be abolished Sin, suffering, shame will have no place, and God will ultimately set all things right. See, the problem, though, is this exists, God exists in this eternal state. He's outside of time, and so when we think, you know, we think God's being slow. So here's a couple of things you need to know. God doesn't always execute judgment in a timely way, and God doesn't always execute judgment in this life. And so we say God's not fair. No, God's fair, but God has a different time frame than you do. So God isn't executing judgment in a way that you would say is timely. God doesn't even necessarily always execute final judgment in this lifetime because God has an eternal perspective that you don't have. Okay? But at the heart of God's justice is retribution. So we're going to look at how he's revealed that in Scripture, and we're going to see um, how that works. Um, But I want you to stay with me because I know this is harsh and I know it feels harsh, okay? It feels like God can't be a loving God and at the same time say, God is going to give people exactly what they deserve, okay? Trust me, we're going to be okay. Work with me here. So here's what we've got. Uh, God's justice is revealed in a couple of ways in Scripture. And so first of all, we see Romans 1, 18 through 20. You've just got a small snippet of it up there, but let me read it for you. Uh, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people. The wrath of God is his anger and his judgment. Okay, so the judgment and anger of God, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress their truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And so right off the bat, we're going to say this, that God, that God is not unfair in judging people that have not heard the name of Jesus. See, some of you right now, you're thinking, okay, well, okay, that's fine. And if, if, if Matt comes up to somebody and says, okay, look, you need Jesus. Here's why you need Jesus. God loves you so much. And it's all about Jesus. And you need to repent and turn to Jesus and all of this. And, and they say, you know what? I don't want Jesus. Okay, well, maybe God's fair in judging them. But what about the people in the tribes and the jungle and the place that have never heard about God? How is God fair to judge them? Different sermon, different topic. But I will just say this. When you read through Romans 1, 18 through 20 in its entirety, you read this, there is no one with excuse because God's invisible qualities, God's attributes have been made known to everybody by the simple fact of his existence and by the fact that you live, you walk, you breathe, you reproduce, you do all of these things and you say, wow, isn't mother nature awesome? No, the God of the universe is awesome and God's invisible qualities have been seen by everyone. And so there is no one with excuse. And it says here, God will pour his anger out. God's anger, not in the future, is now being revealed. This is active, present, participle. God's anger is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness. Get this. 
There is a natural order of judgment and justice in the world. It doesn't always work exactly because the world is broken. But in general, in general, not always, some of you are going to jump right to the exceptions, but think in general, good repays good, wicked repays wicked. Good gets good, bad gets bad. In general. We say it like this. We say what comes around goes around. Or some of us talk about karma. Karma's going to get you. Okay? There's a natural flow um, of order. And what that is, it's not what comes around goes around is this great principle. There is nothing called karma. What there is is God in his natural order displaying justice. But remember, God also loves you, so he's long-suffering So God is not dinging you every time you sin. God is slow with his justice. Why? Because he loves you. Because he's merciful. He withholds what we deserve in his mercy. Okay? Okay, but remember this. This is the other thing we have to talk about. Because in this instance, what happens is because God is sometimes long-suffering, we have this thing where when people wrong us and we know there's a natural order where good should get good and bad should get bad and somebody hurts me and somebody wrongs me and then I want them to pay for it now. And I don't care that God ultimately will deal with it and that everybody will get what they deserve and that there will be no raw deals and everything will be paid for eventually. I want it dealt with now. And God reminds us in, in Romans 12, 17 through 20. Again, you've got to snip it, but here's what it says. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. That's code for justice isn't your job. Furthermore, it's not your right. It says, don't repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as long as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Not burning coals like, well, that'll really hurt him, but like it'll bring shame and repentance to him. It'll cause your enemy then to rethink their ways and change their behavior is the idea. Okay, but I just want to stop here because we're talking about God's justice and then we acknowledge that God's justice is absolute and it is fair and it is right, but it's not always in your time frame It is not your job to help God along. It's not your right to help God along. You do not get to harbor anger, bitterness. You do not get to actively seek vengeance or revenge on someone that has wronged you. Why? Because that belongs to God. You cannot be righteous and participate in evil why he says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Parents, we say this another way. How do we say it? Two wrongs don't make a right. See, it's great how we have all these parental sayings that we tell our kids, two wrongs don't make a right. Um, But then when it comes to us and we look at it, where, where does it come from? Well, it comes from scripture when God says, don't repay anyone evil for evil. We're like, man, we got parented by God. That's what it is. Don't do it. It's not your right. It's not your responsibility. Okay? So one is we, we see that God's justice is dis- displayed for us in the natural order, but then there's a, there's a better way. We see God's justice displayed through the cross. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's Christ suffering and the righteous for the unrighteous. That's a, that's a picture of him dying on the cross, being separated from God. This is the punishment that was upon him was due to us, broken, sinful people. But God put our punishment on him. The righteous sacrificed for the unrighteous. Why? To bring us into a relationship with God. He was put to death in flesh, in the body. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was made alive. That's what happens to us when we become new believers. That's why we use the phrase. If you've ever used the phrase and don't know why, or you hear it in churches and you don't know what it means, or the the weird guy at the street corner standing on the box waving his Bible in the air says something about being born again, And you're like, that's weird. I don't know what he's talking about. This is what he's talking about. Being born again. 
the flesh dying, but being made alive in the spirit. Okay? Jesus does that. Why? Because God is being true. Get this. That's the one. It's at the cross that God holds himself accountable to his standard of righteousness. Listen to me. This should make no sense to you. See, some, we, we, those of us that have grown up in church, we've heard this way too much. It's kind of lost its meaning. It's lost its flavor. If you're a teenager here, put your eyes on me. Put your phone away and look at me. Hear me. This cannot lose its importance for you because the stakes are way too high. Hell is too real and it is awful. And heaven is too glorious and it is awesome. And there is only one reality of righteousness and it is Jesus Christ who dies on the cross. This is it. What happens on the cross is God holding himself to his own standard. Because he can't do it any other way. Remember, at his foundation is righteousness, holiness, and justice. They both have to be satisfied for someone to be in his presence. And the only way that works is through the death of the only righteous one, Jesus Christ, God in flesh, God of the universe. Come, we're about to celebrate Advent. We got a few more weeks of Thanksgiving stuff, but some of you, who's jamming to Christmas music? You just own it. <laughs> own it, yeah. If you got XM radio, I'm only slightly embarrassed to tell you that Channel 70 is playing Christmas music. <laughs> you won't find it programmed in my, no. Or maybe you will. Doesn't matter, right? But Christmas, we're like, oh, Jesus comes and it's cute and it's nice, but it's for this purpose. It's so that God can, can hold himself to the same standard that he holds you to. See, God wants to forgive you. He loves you. And so what happens at the cross, when we come to the cross, we basically hide ourselves under it, and, and, and it's what we call atonement. We hide ourselves under the cross, and we say, okay, the cross covers us. We are now okay because we are under the cross, and the cross covers us. But the only thing that covers you is the cross. See, we say God will treat everyone fairly. The fairness that I rightly deserve isn't because of me. See, this should blow your mind a little bit. The fairness that I rightly deserve is because I've hidden myself under the cross. And I let the cross cover me. I let the blood of Jesus cover me. So that when that day comes and when judgment comes, I will fairly get the trade of the universe. I will fairly get the righteousness of Jesus put on me. My goodness. I tried it. Those things go any higher? Man. I will rightly get the righteousness of Jesus. That's, that's the way that this works, okay? But that should, all, all of a sudden, you should be starting to have this realization then. And the realization is that not everybody will have that covering. And it's not because Jesus is withholding it. See, one of the cultural challenges that we have to deal with is this question of, will God send people to hell? Will God send anyone to hell? And the answer is yes and no. And it's semantic. But here's the deal. God will send no one to hell. Hell will be full of people. Because there are people. There are people that will choose to not seek the covering of the cross. There are people that will choose to go their own way and God will say, okay. I want you to chew on that for a second and we're going to come back to it and actually we're going to end there as we go to communion. But, but, but here's what I need you to know first, uh, that if you're a Christian here today, you get judgment too. See, there's two kinds of judgment that await us. One is um, eternal judgment for reward. 
Okay, Christian, this is good news for you and scary news for you all at the same time. There is judgment for you. Okay, we, we read about it in a couple of different places, but, but most thoroughly we read about it in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15. Uh, let me read them for you. Okay, it says, because of God's grace to me, I've laid, this is Paul talking to the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth is going nuts. There's conflict happening right now. This is what he's addressing, but, but you'll pick up on that. Uh, because of God's grace to me, I've laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now others are building on it. But whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one that we already have, Jesus Christ. And then here's what he goes on to say about judgment. He says, anyone who builds on that foundation, the foundation of Jesus, okay, so this is you as a Christian. Anything you do as a Christian is building on this foundation of Jesus. Your entire life, whether you mean it to be or not, is building on this foundation of Jesus. And so here's what he says. Anyone who builds on that foundation, Blessed Hope Church, that's you, may use a variety of materials. You can use gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But get this, on the judgment day, fire, okay, and this imagery of fire is this imagery of, of purification. It's a testing process to see how pure something is. Fire was used for that. How pure is the silver? How pure is the gold? How pure are the precious stones? It's a purity thing, okay, and so here's what it is, okay? But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. So get this. This is a judgment specifically for Christians. And you'll notice that even if everything that you built on this foundation burns away, it's not like, oh, well, you don't escape the flames. No, no, no. Here's what it says. It says, you will escape, the builder will be saved, but everything that they brought to the table will be burned away. And they'll escape. They'll be saved. But just like somebody sneaking through, barely escaping a wall of fire. Christian, I need you to understand this. Heaven will be awesome for all of us. Heaven is the absence of evil. It's the absence of sin. Heaven is where we will be like Jesus. But you know what heaven is not? There is nothing in Scripture to indicate. In fact, everything in Scripture to indicate it is not. Heaven is not a socialist republic where everyone has the same experience. Heaven is not a socialist republic where everyone has the same experience. There are rewards in heaven. And according to this text in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 10 through 15, there will be loss in your getting there. That's why Jesus says, hey, I got an idea. Don't store up treasures for yourself here where moths and rust and thieves ruin, but store up treasures for yourself in heaven where they will be held secure for you. Okay, now I'm going to say this and it's going to seem weird, and I want you to talk to me about it later if, if, if we need to dig into this more. But... God will evaluate your life as a Christian and how you live out your faith will have a direct correlation to the quality of your life in heaven. How you live out your faith, whether or not you live your faith as this idea in your brain or if it makes it into your actions and behavior in your heart, how you live your life will have a direct correlation to the quality of your life in heaven. That's why Jesus says, store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Some of us, I mean, be honest, how many of you are really, really planning your retirement? Like, it's going to be awesome. I'm going to have a boat. I'm going to learn how to drive a boat. Then I'm going to have a boat. I'm going to travel around the country. I'm going to go on vacations. I'm going to eat lots of delicious food. It's going to be great. I'm never going to work. I'm going to do nothing. Like, we will work hard for our retirement. 
we will plan for, we will invest in, we will save for our retirement, which is over in a finite number of years. I'm not saying don't plan for your retirement. Plan for your retirement. Be smart. But I'm talking about eternity here. And how you live your life as a Christian will directly influence what your experience is, the quality of your life in heaven. That sounds rough, and it's different than we talk about. But that's the way it is. Think about this. Think about this. You are born again. You've been given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, God himself, lives inside of you. You've been given a spiritual gift for the edification of the church. You, because you live here, have more education, more financial resources than the grand majority of the world. You have the freedom to talk about Jesus on the street if you want to. You have the freedom to open up your house and invite people in to study the Bible and hear the gospel. You have the freedom to do all these things. Ephesians 2.10 says not only do you have the freedom, but God actually has a plan for you to do that today. He knows, okay, he's got it. He says, I created you new in Christ Jesus. You're my masterpiece. Why? So you can do the good things that I planned a long time ago for you to do. And, And God will ask you in that moment, what did you do with that? What did you do with it? Did you use it or did you waste it? And so we will have an opportunity as Christians to be judged not for our salvation, our salvation is set, but to be judged for our rewards. And what survives the fire and what doesn't? You know what? I'm so impressed with so many of you. There are so many of you here that work so hard at what we call, as as leaders in the church, we call organic ministry. You don't care, but let me tell you what organic ministry is. Organic ministry is ministry that just burns in your heart. There's something wrong, and it needs to be addressed, and it burns within you, and you tackle it. And the church doesn't have to be in charge of it. The church isn't setting up another ministry team or another committee to tackle it. It's just happening because of you and what you see. And we got prayer boxes that, that come from a small group and from somebody saying, you know what, I, I just, I feel like we need to be more prayerful in the community. And we had this thing yesterday, this be you bravely. I wasn't invited because <laughs> I'm not a teenage girl. But a bunch of our women and some other women in the community, you know what they thought? They thought, man, it's hard being a teenage girl. And so let's get to, guys, listen, men, we, we got work to do. Our women outpace us many times, and that's, <laughs> that's funny. It's not funny. I don't know if you're clapping that they outpace us or that we have work to do, but either way. But listen, they got, so, so we got, what, 40, 45? I don't know how many teenage girls that gathered yesterday. Some of them are here. You can ask them about it. But what to hear about how God sees them and what God desires for them and how they need to live a life that honors. I mean, all of this. Why? Because there was a need. Why? Because we're storing up treasures in heaven where moths won't get to them and rust won't happen and thieves won't break in and steal, but where Jesus Christ is holding them secure. First Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy 1.12 says, I know whom I've believed in and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep everything that I've committed until that day. When you commit your time, your talent, your treasure When you commit those things, your heart, your intention, when you lay yourself bare for the sake of the gospel, it's not worthless. Jesus is holding it. And then when this moment of judgment comes, this, by the way, this is called the Bema Seat Judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. It's not for salvation, it's for rewards. When you get to that judgment and the fire tests your life as a Christian and whether your faith was an idea or your faith was action and and we see what comes from it, then you'll be rewarded this is a good thing. But not everyone will be there because some people will choose to do it on their own. And for them, eternal judgment won't be for reward. It'll be for retribution. I hate this text, but I'm going to read it to you anyway. This is my least favorite text in all of scripture. And if I was allowed to make up my own, this wouldn't be in here. But I'm not allowed to make up my own I got to give you what it says, and here's what it says. Revelation 20, verses 11, um, all the way through 15. And I saw a great white throne, and then I saw the one sitting on it. The earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. 
I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were opened, including the book of life. The book of life, by the way, is where your name is when you decide to follow Jesus and you are born again. Your name is in the book of life. If it's not there, though, then it's in this other book. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and the death and the grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. The death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death, and anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, you can argue with me all you want about whether hell is a literal lake of fire I don't think it is. It doesn't matter. Because here's what hell is. Hell is a place you don't want to be. Hell is real. Hell is eternal. That means it doesn't end. Right? When you are in hell, there's not an opportunity for you to work your way out of hell. Right? There's no such thing. Listen, I mean, I, this, is, this is me going to argue with some of our Catholic friends, and, and, and we can talk more about this later, but if, this, if you grew up in this tradition, let's talk, because you're not going to find anything in here about this place called purgatory. There's no opportunity to work your way out. It doesn't exist. There is this one moment. Hebrews 9.23 says, everyone is destined to die once, then the judgment. And this is the judgment. If your name is in the book of life, you experience the Bema Seat judgment, the judgment seat of Christ where you earn your rewards for how you lived your life as a Christian. If your name is not written in the book of life, then you are judged by your actions and your actions always, because they are not perfect, are found wanting, and you are cast into this. I hate it, but I'm going to tell you again. Anyone whose name is not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. It just is what it is. See, but this isn't God sending people to hell. See, that's not what happens. God doesn't send people to hell. Chip Ingram says it this way. Hell is a place that demonstrates the highest dignity of the creator, God, the highest dignity of the God of the universe for the moral freedom of his creation. You know who's in hell? Hell are people that say, God, I do not want you. And God's response is, okay. And it's not harsh, it's not mean, because God has chased them all the way to the cross. It is what it is. And so, listen, um, ultimately, we talk about God's justice, and we're like, it doesn't make sense to us, it doesn't make sense to us, it's okay. Everything works. In the end, God will make sure no one gets a raw deal, everyone will get what they deserve, and if you choose the cross... Then, then what you deserve is different. If you, if you seek shelter under the cross, then what you deserve is different. But if you decide to go it on your own, then the result of going on your own is that you've said, God, I don't want you. I didn't want you while I lived my, my life on earth. And God will say, fine, then you don't have to have me for eternity. And I can think of no worse place to be than a world absent of everything good and right and we're like, oh, is hell a literal fire where it burns you day and night? I don't know. But here's what I know. It's the worst possible thing imaginable. It's the worst possible thing that I can't even imagine. And I have a terrible, terrible, awful imagination when it comes to bad things. It is what it is. But the good news is that what the justice of God demands, the love of God provides. That's the good news. What the justice of God demands, the love of God provides. If you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, God will demand justice from you. And that justice requires your life. But the good news is that what the the justice of God demands because of your sinfulness and your imperfection, the love of God provides so that you do not have to spend eternity separate from him, but instead you can have a relationship with him. We're about to celebrate communion. 
I'll tell you now that, that our communion table is open, which basically means that you do not need to be a member of the church to take communion with us. All you need to be is, is a member of uh, the Christian family. If you are here today and you are following Christ, then actually this whole thing about what, what the justice of God demands, the love of God provides, we take communion and it's this great picture of it that everything you ever needed God to do for you, he accomplished for you on the cross. Okay, we, we, we'll ask the elders to come forward and prepare to, to serve communion, but, but the bread is broken. Uh, Paul says this, you know, Jesus said in the upper room, Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians, he says, he, he broke the bread, he passed it around, he said, this is my body, do this to remember me. Why do we do that? Well, we do it because it's a picture of what's about to happen on the cross. As Christ says, my body is about to be broken, physically, nailed to the cross. I am going to die as a sacrifice for your sin. Because what the justice of God demands, which is your death as a sinner, the love of God provides in the person of Jesus on the cross. And so as we eat the bread, it's the reason we say, look, you need to be a Christian if you're going to do this. Because as we eat the bread, what we're doing is we're remembering what happened. And then as we drink the cup, what we said is he, is he, is he poured the drink and he passed it around. He said, drink this. Uh, this is a picture of my blood, the new covenant poured out for you. What we're doing is we're remembering that it's the blood of Jesus that covers us. It's the blood of Jesus that atones. It's the blood of Jesus where I go and I hide under that for salvation. It's the blood of Jesus that provides me everything I need to live a life that honors God here so that when I sit on the Bema Seat Judgment, that my work won't burn away and I won't escape as one barely escaping the flames, but that my life will have meant something for the sake of the gospel. And it's this new covenant where I can go directly into the throne room and I can talk to God and I can do those things. Okay? So that's what, that's what this means when, when Paul says here, you know, you know in, in 1 Corinthians, he says, you know, Christ broke the bread and he passed it out and he said, eat this and remember me. And they poured the cup and he said, drink this to remember me. It's all about the sacrifice of Jesus. It's all about this truth that's on the screen. We're just going to leave it there, let it lay there. And you can reflect on that as you come and take communion. Um, it, it simply says this, what the justice of God demands from you, the love of God provides for you when you choose Jesus. And there's no time like now. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray, and we'll dismiss you by rose. Uh, come and, and take communion. Uh, if, you, if you would like to pass, you're, you're more than welcome um, to stay, but come and enjoy communion with us. Uh, when communion is over, you have two choices. You can either go ahead and quietly exit the sanctuary, um, or you can go back and be reflective in your seat. Um, but as I pray and we take communion, that'll close our service. Okay? So would you pray with me as we prepare for this? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you. We thank you for the truth that you are a good and gracious and loving God. God, we acknowledge that your holiness, your righteousness, and your justice are characteristics that you can't escape from, that you can't set aside, that you can't leave behind, but that they're at the core of the fact that you are a God who loves and creates. That's what it is. And we fail. But God, we thank you for the truth that what your justice demands that your love provides. God, that truth is it burns into our, our brain as, as, we, as we think about it in our heart, knowing that you love us that much, that what your justice demands, the love of God provides in, in the death, the resurrection, and the reigning of your son, Jesus Christ. And so God, we ask you to bless us. We ask you to help us be reflective and thoughtful as we go through this uh, this time of communion, and we just, ultimately, God, we just ask for you to have your way in all things. Amen.